Um, you know, I, as I was sitting here, how many of you watched, I don't know if you watched the game last night, but I, I'm going to carry the football theme for just a minute more. Um, <laughs> did you watch the game with the Steelers and the Bengals? Anybody? Okay. Um, I'm not a Steeler fan at all, but for some reason I was rooting for the Steelers, or maybe I just... I had joked yesterday with a friend of mine who's a Bengals fan that the Bengals just always self-destruct. I mean, because he, he made the comment to me, he said, you know, uh, we're better than Pittsburgh right now. And so as long as we don't self-destruct, and I said, ah, oh, no chance of the Bengals self-destructing in a playoff game. Um, and it, they did, they totally did. But what, what I, I want to share with you is that at the end of the game, they just lost their composure. I mean, they had that thing won. Even with the fumble and it looked like, you know, they could come back. It Just stupid things. And, you know, the, that's the way the enemy comes into our lives. You know, we're down 15 to nothing and it looks like there's no chance of a comeback. But with the Lord, all of a sudden, the score can change. And it can be 16-15 in your favor. But if you don't keep walking in the grace and the power of God, the enemy can come into your life and get you to just act out of character. And, you know, the, the last penalty that the Bengals player got that put Pittsburgh into field goal range. You know, I, my Bengal fan friend is so, you know, well, why was that coach on the field? You know why that coach was on the field? To incite the other players. He wasn't supposed to be on the field. He wasn't allowed on the field. But you know what? At the end of the day, Bengals, you still just have to keep your composure. That's all it took to win that game or to at least make the field goal a little longer. But he didn't. He, he lost his composure. And that's exactly what Jerry Porter wanted him to do. Okay, let's not all pretend here that Jerry Porter's some nice saint. Okay, he's a, he was a dirty player when he played the game, and he's a, probably a dirty coach too. And so I know he was on the field to try to get the Bengals upset. And you know what? He did. He did. And they lost the game, not because a coach was on the field illegally, but because they couldn't maintain their composure. They couldn't maintain their composure. Learn to maintain your composure. This kind of goes into the series that we are coming back to. You remember Put Away the Toys? We started this way back in August. And then we took a break during the, um, the, the Advent season and we went through this Advent thing. But this series comes from Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians. When Paul said, I put away childish things and I became a man. A lot of times we want to translate that when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's really not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I became a man by putting away childish things. Okay? You don't become a man because you're physically mature. Okay? The fact that you can father a child does not make you a father. You have to, as a father, put away childish things and start acting like a father. That's what makes you a father. And so just because you've been saved for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years or 30 years does not make you mature in Christ. It doesn't mean you've grown up and become a man or a woman of God. What makes you a man or a woman of God is that you put away childish things and you grow up. And that's what this series has been about as we've walked through each of these things. And it, it comes out of a book by Eugene Peterson called Perseverance. The subtitle of the book is Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's about learning to grow in the Lord by doing the right thing and doing it over and over and over and over and over again. And not saying, well, I did the wrong thing and I know I cost my team the game because that coach was out on the field. No, 
You can't blame Satan. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your spouse. You can't blame anyone else. It's all on us as individuals. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to walk this thing out. And it's time for us to put away childish things. I mean, a lot of those players on both sides last night were acting like children. The way that they were cheering when people got hurt. I mean, even the fans throwing beer cans at an injured player who's leaving the field. It's a stupid game. And look how emotion and energy all got up there and charged up and made people just do stupid stuff. The spirit of stupid was all over everybody. I mean, I, I know the spirit of stupid has been on me before too. But if we're going to grow up, we really have got to break ties with it. And we got to start doing the right thing and doing it over and over and over again. The scripture tells us as believers over again, several times, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. In other words, when we feel like, you know, I just can't go on. I can't do any more. The scripture doesn't say to you, oh, I'm so sorry. It doesn't empathize with us. What it says is, hey, it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of what we've got. And it says, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Discipline yourself. Grow up in your faith. It's saying this hard time where you are, when you feel like you can, and you just take what God has put in you and you use it to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. You grow up and you put away childish things. As we went through this series using the Psalms of Ascent, we talked about repentance and trust and worship and service and help, security, joy, work, happiness, perseverance. Remember all those? Today, we're gonna talk about hope. We're gonna talk about hope. We're gonna go to Psalm 130, and I'm gonna put this on the screen in a minute. If you wanna use the Bible that's in front of you or your Bible, you can. If you have an electronic Bible, we're gonna use the message version again. And so we're going to get to that. But I want to remind you what the Psalms of Ascent are. The Psalms of Ascent are the Psalms that are 120 through 134. In the middle of your Bible, the book of songs, um, the book of poems, if you will, that were written by David and Moses and different men of God. Um, the sons of Korah wrote some of them. These are 15 Psalms that were sung in sequence as the Jews traveled to Jerusalem. Three times every year, the Jews were required to travel to Jerusalem. They were required to go for the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. They were required to go for the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. They were required to go at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Ingathering or the Final Harvest. Now, I want you to understand, the Bible is a complete book. Uh, it's several different books written by 40 different men over a period of 1,600 years, but it's one story. It's one revelation of God from beginning to end. As we learned in Sunday school today, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He came to fulfill the one God established in his people. Okay? We are not a new people. We're a different people. We have been grafted into the, the nation of Israel. We are God's people. We are not Christians separate from Jews. We have been grafted into God's family. This is a complete story and a complete book. Okay, and that makes sense because this Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, is when Jesus died. 
The Feast of Pentecost, when they were required to appear before God, was the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers. The Feast of Ingathering, the final harvest, represents Jesus coming back to earth a final time. In the Old Testament and New Testament, everything comes together. It's a complete story and a complete book. So as they ascended to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is like the highest point in, in Israel, except for you know, Mount Hermon, which is way up, up at the top, which is, you know, a mountain with snow on it. But Jerusalem was high. So wherever you went, you went up to Jerusalem. It wasn't like people from North Dakota who went up to Aberdeen, okay? They, they, you didn't. You went down to Aberdeen, okay? But they went up to Jerusalem. Wherever you came from, you're going up. Not only that, but Jerusalem's a spiritual high point. So wherever you are in the land of Israel, Jerusalem is up here spiritually. You're ascending to it. That's why they're called the Psalms of Ascent. For us, as we are growing in our relationship with the Lord, as we're ascending to him. Now, we know he lives inside of us. We know that he's wherever we are. But we are ascending to him. We're going from glory to glory to glory, as the New Testament says. So all of this to, to remind us that these Psalms are helping us to, to ascend to him. Okay, so all of the things that we've talked about, and now today as we look at hope, Psalm 130 says this, help, help God. The bottom has fallen out of my life. Master, hear my cry for help. Listen hard, open your ears, listen to my cries for mercy. If you, God, kept a record of wrongdoings, who would stand a chance? As it turns out, Forgiveness is your habit, and that's why you're worshiped. I pray to God, my life a prayer, and wait for what he'll say and do. My life's on the line before God, my Lord, waiting and watching till morning, waiting and watching till morning. Oh, Israel, wait and watch for God. With God's arrival comes love. With God's arrival comes generous redemption. No doubt about it, he'll redeem Israel. Buy back Israel from captivity to sin. If you feel like the bottom has fallen out of your life, this psalm's for you. If you've never felt like that, I promise you at least one time in your life you will. This psalm is for you. The first thing that this psalm teaches us is that to be human is to be in trouble. To be human is to be in trouble. It says right from the beginning, the bottom has fallen out of my life. But a Christian is a person who decides to face and live through suffering. And if we don't make the decision to face and live through suffering, we will be in danger on every side of our lives. We are going to face the risk of becoming a cynic. We're going to the, the, have the risk of sinking into a deep despair. And so Psalm 130 not only grapples with suffering, but it sings its way through suffering. It provides hope for those who have committed to follow Christ even through suffering. If you are only going to follow Christ when life is good and you are not going to follow him or trust his word or put it into practice when life is hard or when you're suffering, you're going to be in danger because suffering is a part of what it is to be human. Jesus said, you will have trouble. So the psalm begins in pain. 
Help, God. The bottom has fallen out of my life. Master, hear my cry for help. Listen hard. Open your ears. Listen to my cries for mercy. The psalm is an anguished prayer. And the psalmist sets this anguish out in the open and he voices it as a prayer. In doing that, he gives dignity to suffering. What that means is he doesn't make suffering something that we should be embarrassed about. He doesn't make suffering something that we should hide away in a closet somewhere. He kind of condemns the notion that people with real faith don't really suffer. He gives, he gives us hope in the midst of suffering. He gives us value even when we're suffering. He doesn't treat suffering as a puzzle that has to be explained. What he does is he sets suffering right out in the open, right out squarely in the face of God, passionately before God, and he acknowledges it, he expresses it, he describes it, and then he lives it. That's all he does. See, we live in a time when everyone's goal is to be perpetually happy. That's what our goal is. We strive to be healthy. We strive to be happy. And if we fail to be either one of those things, all of a sudden we've become a problem for everyone else to solve. A host of well-intentioned people will now make entrance into our life. And all of them will know the reason why we're suffering. They'll be quick to point out what we have done wrong to get ourselves into the position that we are now in. Then they will have a prescription for us. They will know the way out of this suffering. Psalm 130 offers no quick fixes. It doesn't give us any easy answers. There's no lectures on suffering. There's no band-aid treatments. There's no coverings to hide it from the view of others. We're not told to take a vacation. We're not told to take a new drug. We're not advised to get a hobby. There's not a publicity cover-up. There's no self-help plastic smile campaign. Suffering is simply held up, proclaimed, and prayed. That's all it's done. Christians are not to celebrate suffering. Psalm 130 isn't telling us make a religion out of it. It doesn't tell us to be some type of masochist who gets pleasure in uh, being mistreated or in suffering. It doesn't teach us that you are only truly holy when you're suffering. It doesn't think that misery is a sign of great righteousness. But suffering is accepted. But it's not sought after. Nowhere in this psalm are we told to seek after suffering unnecessarily to bring some kind of pain on ourselves so that we can draw closer to God. But what it does say is suffering is inevitable and in the midst of it, it will draw you closer to God or it will push you further away from him. The second important thing this psalm does for us is it immerses the suffering in God. All throughout this psalm, God is seen as very personal and very concerned. Psalm 100 that we read earlier today reminded us that we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. This psalm shows a specific knowledge of God as our redeemer. Eight times in this psalm, the name of God is used. And every time it's used, every time he is addressed, it reveals for us something about his character. God is understood as the one who forgives sin. God is the one who comes to those who wait and hope for him. He's characterized by steadfast love. He's shown to be one who brings redemption and that he will ultimately redeem Israel. In the midst of suffering, we see in Psalm 130 that it's only God that makes the difference. 
God acts positively towards his people. Look at the words that the psalmist uses. God is not indifferent. He does not reject. He's not acting arbitrarily. He's not stingy, providing only what we need for basic survival. And because what we know about God, we are able to face suffering, acknowledge suffering, accept suffering, and live through suffering, through hard times, through despair. We know that suffering can never be the ultimate. It's never the bottom line for us. The psalm reminds us that God is at the foundation and God is at the boundaries of suffering. If God were any different than he is, none of us would make it. Look at what he says. If you, God, kept records on wrongdoings, who would stand a chance? But as it turns out, forgiveness is your habit and that's why you're worshiped. The two great realities of Psalm 130 is God is real and suffering is real. We accept suffering and we believe in God. Now, there's more than just a description of this reality. There's also a procedure in what to do about it, a prescription, if you will. And God's program is given to us in just two words. Any guesses? He repeats them a few times. Wait, watch. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I'm in suffering, I want something that I can do to alleviate my suffering. Take me to a doctor, get me a pill, uh, give me an oil, rub some bacon on it, I don't know. I mean, anything. You know, what's funny is I, I bite my fingernails, and uh, sometimes I bite them too much, and they get infected. And so, yeah, I know. I just read on Facebook that somebody died from an infected finger. Mine have never been infected that bad. But uh, pray for me. I need to break the habit. But it does help my immune system to be incredibly strong because of all the nasty stuff under your fingernails. I digress. But one time when I was a child, it got infected. And you know, my grandma, my grandma told my mom, she said, Rub, wrap some bacon around it while he sleeps. Literally. We wrapped bacon around my finger while I slept and uh, put a cloth over it, and in the morning, it was not infected anymore. So um, I'm not recommending that bacon cures infection. Please see your doctor for more, uh, more advice than what my grandma gave. <laughs> I love grandma. Um, <laughs> she is in heaven right now saying, when you get here, we're going to have a talk. But the words wait and hope in this psalm are connected together for us they add up to hope. They're connected in this image that the psalmist gives us of the watchman waiting for the morning. Now, for us, we don't really deal with a watchman all the time, but a lot of buildings in our day have what's called a night watchman uh, where that, that person is there, and basically their job is to watch for the morning. I mean, they're to be aware of any dangers, but I mean, the, their job is to watch the building till morning. And the thing is, is they can do nothing to make the morning come. Their job is to watch and wait for the morning. And you know what the funny thing is? Every single time, morning comes. Every single time. And they did nothing to make it come. The watchman is alert to the dangers. He gives others comfort and safety knowing that the, there's a watchman there until it's time to work again or play again. And so the psalmist says that our watching and our waiting and our hoping 
is based on this same kind of conviction. Just like the dawn comes every single morning, we are sure that God is actively involved in, our cre- in, in his creation. God is actively involved in our redemption. And so because of it, we know that even in the midst of suffering, God is at work, he is surrounding us, and that dawn is going to come. Suffering, hoping, excuse me, does not just mean doing nothing. It means we have to go about our assigned tasks. I mean, the watchman still makes his rounds. He still does certain things. He does nothing to make the dawn come, but he does have a job to do in the meantime. See, we spend all our time trying to get ourselves out of suffering instead of doing the job we're supposed to be doing in the midst of suffering. You know, that's hard to hear when the bottom has fallen out of your life. But that's the reminder that this psalm gives to us. That God is well aware of where we are and he is working for our redemption and we can trust him in the meantime. Hoping is not dreaming. It's not trying to create some fantasy escape so that we don't have to, or we can just pretend that there's no pain. It's a confident and alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It's a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. Look at what he says. I pray to God, my life of prayer. I wait and I wait for what he'll say and do. My life's on the line before God, my Lord, waiting and watching till morning, waiting and watching till morning. See, as, we, as I've already said, when we suffer, we attract a lot of different counselors and they come into our lives and they try to give us hope. They try to give us some way out of our, our problem or our, 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 our situation. And if we can't get quickly out of it, a lot of times people dismiss us as hopeless. You're hopeless. God never dismisses us as hopeless. He's always working. And what we need in this time is not the quick fixes that a lot of times other people offer us. What we need is hope. What we need is to know where we are in relation to God. What we need is to know that suffering is a part of what it is to be human. And what we need to know is where we are and where God is. What we need is an ophthalmologist, not a painter. What? A painter will take a brush and a canvas and he will paint us a picture of how he views the world. An ophthalmologist will give us a a prescription. He'll give us eyes that are able to help us see the world as it really is. That's the difference. Psalm 130 isn't a painting. Psalm 130 is a set of spectacles. We need to put Psalm 130 on so we can see clearly in the midst of suffering. So we can remind ourselves, morning is coming. For the person who suffered or will suffer or has suffered, Psalm 130 convinces us that the biggest difference is not what we suffer, but how we suffer. The biggest difference is not what we suffer, but how we suffer. Because what we like to do is weigh our suffering versus another's. Well, you don't know because you've never suffered like me. No, I've never suffered like you. I've suffered. And all of our suffering in this room has been different. 
what we suffer doesn't matter. How we suffer matters. How we respond to that suffering matters. You see, if I had a, a jar of putrid water and I shook it, it would bring a smell out of it. You would, you would that shaking would, mm, yeah. You would know that that water's putrid. But if I took some essential oils and I put them in water or perfume, for those of you that don't know what essential oils are, but I put something good smelling in water, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference maybe between the two waters. But when you shake it, what's in the water comes out. And so it's either going to emit a good smell or a bad smell. Same shaking. Same shaking. How we suffer really matters most. The psalm does not exhort us to just put up with suffering. It doesn't explain it. It doesn't explain it away. But what it does is it demonstrates that even in our depths of suffering, we are not out of bounds from God. Whoever or whatever has caused us to suffer has never and can never separate us from God. God's plan of redemption for our lives is always on the move. Always on the move. We're persuaded that he will have his way of redemption because forgiveness is his habit. Redemption, not the suffering, is what we fix our eyes on. We don't glorify the suffering and we don't ignore the suffering. We accept the suffering and we fix our eyes on the redemption that God is working in our lives whether we're suffering or whether we're not. See, the bottom always has a bottom. The bottom has fallen out of my life. Can I tell you, there is no such thing as a bottomless pit except for a lake of fire. But the heavens are endless. The heights are endless. The bottom always has a bottom. But the heights never stop. Never stop. And the psalmist is merely saying, look up. Look up. Your redemption is drawing near. In James chapter 1, it says these words. Let me skip to it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Let perseverance finish its work so you will be mature and complete. Don't celebrate the suffering. I know we have that one example of the apostles leaving when they were beaten, considering themselves worthy to be able to suffer for Jesus. Let's not make a doctrine out of that. No one else in Scripture is really celebrating the fact that they're being beaten. I mean, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He didn't celebrate the cross. Gethsemane wasn't, oh, yeah, thank you, Father, for this opportunity to serve you this way. Woohoo! It was not my will, but yours be done. And so I'll embrace suffering, knowing what it's going to produce. See, we look at a situation and we say, well, this one looks like it's going to cause me more pain than this one. Hmm, I'll take this one. 
But God says, no, I, I want you to choose this path. But God, you understand that's going to cost me more. That's going to hurt me more. I, I don't want to choose that. What about this path over here, God? And Jesus looks at both of these options square in the face and he says, he knows full well this path of suffering. So he says, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. And so he puts this path away and he humbles himself and keeps himself obedient to God, even to the death on the cross, never celebrating it. Heaven did not rejoice about the cross. It rejoiced at the effects of the cross. No one's expecting you to do cartwheels when you're in the midst of suffering. They're not, we're not expecting you to put on some plastic happy face and say, I'm suffering for Jesus. But what you have to do is you have to fix your hope on the morning that is coming. Otherwise, you're going to sink further and further into despair. I want to close with Romans chapter 8. Maybe you've already thought of Romans chapter 8 in light of Psalm 130. There's such a, a huge connection when the Apostle Paul says these words to us. What do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They could kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I am absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way Jesus, our master, has embraced us. I'm not a big fan of the message version either, but I love that. And maybe you heard your own version because you're like, I like my way better. But understand this, nothing, nothing can separate us from God's plan for us. And what is his plan for us? Redemption. Redemption. Nothing can stop it. Suffering is just a part of what it means to be human. God's plan for us is redemption, and he will have his way. This psalm is a reminder that no depth will ever separate us from the love or the purpose of God. I hope that this psalm has restored hope to your heart. Because in the midst of suffering, here's what I know. Dawn is coming. It always has, and it always will. So Father, I thank you today for your word.
I thank you that in the midst of a life that is filled with uncertainty, that we have a certain hope. I thank you that even when it feels like the bottom has fallen out of our lives because something has happened that has completely taken us by surprise. I thank you that we can be sure nothing, nothing has ever taken you by surprise. And that even in the midst of hardship and suffering, even in the midst of these moments where the bottom falls out, you are working redemption for us. Father, I pray today especially for those in this room that find themselves falling right now where the bottom has fallen out in some area of their lives. Father, restore hope today. Faith comes from your word, hearing your word. Holy Spirit, help them to hear your word today. That you are the faithful God. That your mercy is everlasting. You are faithful to every generation. That we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. You will do what you said you will do. You will be who you said you are. Help us in the midst of this suffering, the pain that we face, not to compare our suffering with someone else, not to make excuses for our suffering, not to find answers for our suffering. But help us just to wait and watch like the watchman hoping for the morning, knowing that you will ultimately redeem your people. And so though we don't like it, God, help us to suffer well. Help us to consider it joy when we face the trials. Not to find joy in the trials, but to find joy in the perseverance they produce in us. Help us to trust your will your ways help us not to lean on our own understanding but help us to acknowledge you to be faithful to do our job as a watchman to be going about your business even while we're waiting for the morning to dawn Father, give us eyes today that see and see clearly. If you're here today and the bottom has fallen out of your life, the last thing I want you to do now is raise your hand and come forward and, and say, hey, the bottom's fallen out of my life. Even though the psalm has declared there's nothing to be embarrassed about, this psalm condemns the lie that 
people of faith don't suffer. Even if your suffering is a result of something you've done, Jesus is the author and finisher of your faith. And he's not in heaven today, standing before the Father, accusing you or condemning you. He's interceding for you. And if you turn to him, you're not going to get a lecture because forgiveness is his habit. What you're going to find is mercy. And so whether your pit is a result of your own decisions or actions, whether it's a result of what something someone else has done to you or something else that's happened to you, See, the suffering doesn't matter, but what we do in that suffering, that's what matters. So my prayer is that God gives you the grace that you need to hold your head up and to watch and wait for the morning that's coming. Don't be alarmed if you keep falling for a while. The pit always has a bottom. God is always with you. But the heights in Him are endless. And in just a moment, He can make everything change. Stay confident and trusting in Him. Don't do anything stupid. It doesn't sound real spiritual, but it's, it's just the truth. Father, thank you for weaving every part of our lives together as a giant patchwork quilt. God, you are always working for our redemption. I pray your strength and grace upon those, especially today, that are suffering. God, help us to remain confident and steadfast, trusting in you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to spend time in prayer, either at your pew or around these altars, if you want to be prayed for, our prayer team, myself, would love to take an opportunity to pray with you today. If you need to be dismissed, just do it quietly. Let this be a place of prayer for those that want to spend some time in prayer before they leave. And uh, save your visiting for out in the foyer area. God bless you as you go. We'll see you on Wednesday night.